I'm Jeff Mooming, Project Manager for Restoration with Impact 7G, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, President of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, Director of Conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska Director of Science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. All right. So, Jeff, explain this to me. What in the world is a poor farm? <laughs> Good question. I'm so glad you asked because <laughs> I didn't know either. Because I sometimes I feel like I'm on a poor farm. I won't <laughs> lie to you. <laughs> well, it's funny you ask that because I think poor farm is a term that's been thrown around for years. You know, if you, you know, study, work hard, you're going to wind up on the poor farm or yeah, something. Well, yeah, the poor farm, it turns out, is a thing, and it was a concept. And uh, and I did put some information together about this for the presentation that you saw at uh, the North American Prairie Conference. So uh, the poor farm that we're talking about is in Johnson County, Iowa, and it was approved by a vote of the residents of Johnson County. Now, remember, Iowa City uh, in Johnson County was the capital of Iowa at the time. So it had sure. engaged citizenry and they put, uh, before a vote of the people, uh, the idea to have a County poor farm. And this at the time was seen as kind of progressive in terms of mental health treatment. Hmm. And that was the reason for it. Uh, the idea being that you, you know, get out in the country you know, work out in the fresh air, exercise, all of that kind of stuff, the residential facility on site. I think, you know, looking at it now, certainly we've improved our approach to mental health care over what happened in 1855 Um, but it was overwhelmingly approved um and so yeah it started in 1855 and in iowa but that was like that was like 10 years after nine nine years after iowa current state oh man i was close and that would have been like two years before the capital moved to des moines to kind of put put it in kind of historical context so it was in johnson county which is where Iowa. no that's not where iowa iowa city's Mm -hmm. lynn yeah, yeah, Iowa City is in, in the county seat of Johnson County. Okay. And the poor farm is in Iowa City, so it's about five miles west of Kinnick Stadium for any Hawkeye fans that oh, are listening. Oh, it's like oh, in okay. the city? Um, or it's on the outskirts it. of it, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. And, and so basically they sent people who had a harder time interacting with uh, the rest of society to this poor farm, but not like prisoners. It was just, you know, mentally handicapped or... Um, but other illnesses. Yeah. Basically. And I think impoverished too, you know, okay. I'd have to pour through the nose to see what exactly the qualifiers were, but um, yeah, it was a range of folks out there, but it was a working farm. And I remember reading in the history from 1883, uh, kind of a, a ledger of what was produced out there and they made some money and they were very proud of it. So it was hmm. a working farm with livestock. There was dairy production, there was crop production um, and then residential facilities uh, where the folks lived. Uh, that is fascinating. It's really, really interesting. And what's interesting to me, having been you know, become involved in this more recently, is that it still exists in Johnson County. Now, yeah. it's not not used as a poor farm now, although there is still the more modern metal healthcare facility on the site, on a corner of the site that's been there since 1964. Okay. Uh, but it stayed in agricultural production for a really, really long Who time. Who was doing that, the agriculture if it wasn't the, the poor farmers? 
So it was land leased. Now, okay. It was actually done by the residents of the poor farm up until, and I, I'll look this up and let you know if I'm wrong. But I want to say up until about the mid-60s or so, wow. residents were working that farm. So over 100 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the facilities remain. So by facilities, the farming facilities, and they've been restored. So, And we could talk for hours and hours about all the projects that are going on yeah. right now. But just briefly, going back about 10 years or so, uh, the group Iowa Valley Resource conservation and development uh, kind of got involved. Another organization, Astige Planning, got involved. Uh, an organization came together called Grow Johnson County, which was an idea by a couple of local residents uh, and people who worked in the food security to use some of that land to produce food for the local food pantries. Mm. So a lot of things have come together that culminated in our, meaning Impact 7G, having uh, custody of the land restoration plan out there. So there is food production going on. Um, There is an incubator kind of area for aspiring farmers to be able to rent a plot of land or a couple plots of land to build their market for their CSA. So there's that. Um, there's a new, okay. what they call the cultivation station. So for harvesting food, there's a washing and packing station, walk-in coolers. The barns have been restored. There are trails being put through it now. Now, our part of it is that kind of natural areas restoration. So the woodland management, the prairie restoration. And is it um, a couple thousand acres? I mean, it sounds like you're talking a lot couple of A couple hundred. A couple hundred. All yeah. of this is on a couple hundred acres. Mm-hmm. So what, mm-hmm. who gets to use this now? Because it was, you were saying, leased to other farmers who mm-hmm. were just regularly farming it. Mm-hmm. Now you guys are trying to... So what is the the vision for it right now? I guess I, I'm not quite understanding that. Basically public use. Public yeah. use. So, yeah. and you said a washing facility? Yeah. So Like there, a shower or like... or like Vegetable washing. Vegetable washing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Shower. That's a good idea. We probably need one of those out there too. Come <laughs> oh, to think of it. Nick was going to use it if you... Uh, if, if so my... <laughs> Run that past the board. Yeah. Our audience knows this, but my wife and I recently flipped a house. And in case everyone's wondering, as of August, we are just doing trim now on the windows, which is the worst part. Who knew that trim was the worst part of flipping a house? <laughs> well, we had gutted it down to the dirt. And basically, we knew someone that needed a place to live. So the house we were going to live in while we were working on this house, we let them live in it. And then we live in this house. There was no water from last August until March sometime. (laughs) And uh, we did not shower enough. (laughs) It's basically what it came (laughs) down to. We'd go to friends' houses or my, my sister's house or, you know, anyone who were like, I think they're not busy tonight. Let's text them. I really need a shower. But... So that is really cool. Basically, anyone who wants to use it, I would imagine, is there any sort of sign up to get a plot in the garden? Sure. Yeah. And and so I have, in the interest of full disclosure, I am actually on the board of directors of Iowa Valley Resource Conservation okay. Development, which predates my working at Impact 7G. Sure. So I'm very careful to watch out for any potential conflicts of interest sure. or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I had gone back. I was friends and actually business neighbors with the folks who created Grow Johnson County. Grow Johnson County kind of grew and became a program of Iowa Valley Resource Conservation and Development. So it's an RC&D, and I think you guys have talked to some RC&D folks yeah. on the podcast. 
podcast before. Um, And so they did kind of the typical things that an RC&D does. Um, They served as the fiscal agent for this Grow Johnson County as it was getting bigger, but not quite big enough to justify having staff. So it's like, you know, we'll pay the bills, we'll write the paychecks, all that kind of Mm -hmm, stuff for mm -hmm. you. Um, That got absorbed as a program of it. Um, So they are overseeing the development of the farm master plan, uh, or I think they call it the, the new concept farm. We have, we being Impact 7G, we have the natural areas restoration part of the plan. Um, so what we're doing out there is primarily that stuff. IVRC and D has an application process for the aspiring kind of truck farmers or organic farmers that want to build a CSA market. Um, mm. So there are, you know, there are a finite number of plots that they can rent out to do that. Um, but in doing so, they'll get you know, low cost rent on that plot of land. They'll get to use the equipment that's out there. They'll get to use this cultivation station yeah. to clean their vegetables. And Would it just be first come, first serve? Like, I think it basically is, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if there was it's enough really cool. demand where people had to like stand outside two nights before to you know get there on the day open of... <laughs> We're aspiring to that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But as far as like the overall usage of it, so it remains a Johnson County property. It's county-owned. Yeah. And the goal is, and it abuts a lot of neighborhoods, and there's another new neighborhood going up around it. So this is going to be surrounded. I mean, if you guys know the Iowa City area at all, Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, growing rapidly. So neighborhoods are filling in, but this is going to stay. And so it'll be essentially like a big natural area for the citizens of Johnson County and Iowa to enjoy. connected to agriculture in some way. Right, exactly. Yeah, you know what I find to be so interesting about it, the whole, you know, when when they came up with the idea of doing this back in the 1850s, you know, it's... When you really think about it, when you consider the, the the quote unquote impoverished or the poor, right, as they would have called them then, the the primary need you consider is food, and so the way that those community leaders back in 1855 said, "How can we help meet their needs?" Well, how about we provide a place that will provide them with food, mm-hmm. and. That's genius when you think, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure there's, like you said, you know, the way we've, we've dealt with mental health is a constantly evolving uh, process and certainly major mistakes were made in the past and that. So I'm sure there, not everything was perfect, but that is one part of it that I think was really a, a good idea. You know, a farm at that time provided protein, uh, you know, provided uh, your carbohydrates in the form of produce you were growing out of the ground and and but also too from a you know like a physical and mental well-being standpoint gave you something that you could you could you know put your hand to and Mm -hmm. see a sense of accomplishment and and uh be some you know like you said they're proud of when they could grow access and sell for profit you Mm -hmm. know that i think that that part of it you know it's really cool And, and then the fact that the county has held on to that and and not just totally repurposed it either, you know, like turn it into a park. Yeah, or developed yeah. it. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting about it, too, is that this is a plot of land that's told a story for a really, really long time, you know, and it's been well documented for a really, really long time. There have been buildings there for a long time. Uh, people have some kind of connection to both the land and to human beings that had yeah. some interaction with the area. So, you know, we can see, you know, when overhead photography became possible we could see what the land looked like then we have the physical records of what the land was used for what it produced how it's changed over time um so it really really tells a compelling story and there are areas too you know being 
this being the Prairie Farm podcast and all, yeah, you know, there are yeah. little remnants on there. That's cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And we look at that. We look at some of the overhead views to see how the land use changed to kind of inform what our approach has been to the restoration or reconstruction of the land. And and that's really interesting to see, too. One, how much can stay the same and how much can really, really change in a rapid period of time. Yeah. You know, we talked beforehand about the, the woodland work that's mm-hmm. going on out there. And we look back at like 1990, even 2000. And what we think of as the woodlands out there where we're working to kind of take out invasive species right now, there was like nothing there at the Mm. time. This is all grown Mm. up. And there's some really cool monument trees out there that we've kind of crafted our uh, kind of areas around the woodland areas. And we've got all kinds of names for them and stuff like that that we can go into. But there wasn't a lot. And this is a rapidly changing piece of land that every generation since 1855 has kind of had. Well, and certainly before that, too, um, that's kind of had their fingerprints on. Hmm. If if Iowa, I think, was left alone for 125 years, it would be a forest, right? It, mm-hmm. it, I don't think prairies would come. We don't have the bison. We wouldn't have enough um, vegetation from big blue salmon switchgrass to um, produce these huge fires that kept trees down. So it would be a forest. But what you were saying was really fascinating. All I could imagine was a garden or a community garden on like taking Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, steroids. Is is, based, is what it, what it sounds like, mm-hmm. and but it's got like this hundred and sixty year old, hundred and seventy year old story uh, to go along with it, which I think is really compelling. And so, and, and you work for Impact Seven G, so the um, uh, I not Iowa County, Johnson County has basically hired Impact Seven G to manage. There, they gave a vision for what they wanted to be and said, Hey, can you make this happen? Is that kind of how you end up stepping into that role? Yeah, and it was a very collaborative kind of process of okay. looking at it, doing some woodland inventories, yeah. kind of inventorying what the land use was, um, working with that, uh, you know, another planning organization. Uh, uh, and that person is now on the board of supervisors too. So we can mm. talk about that a little bit later too, but we're really happy. There's such buy-in from yeah. the Johnson County board of supervisors into this whole project, but we have what they call the natural areas management plan, um, which is a seven year kind of plan, hopefully longer than that too. Uh, but that's the period of time that we have to kind of implement uh, what the vision is for the natural yeah. areas, those areas that aren't mm. being farmed. Huh? Mm-hmm. And, and so, and I'm sorry to get into the finances, but people really, really care about, about money. Obviously you don't have to give any, specific figures but when you go into that and obviously there's many meetings you're walking through a lot of people are in on that kind of thing how do you go do you say hey we won't go above this number over seven years or do you say hey pick and choose which pieces you want each one will cost this much because i have a we have people calls all the time we've started doing consulting and like going out to people's property um and uh and they're curious, like, how much is it going to cost right up front? Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to tell them. You know, you can't tell them, like, well, there's like a hundred variables, you mm-hmm. know, that are going to go into cost. Do you, do you want anything? Do you want any water work? Do you want any earth move? Do mm-hmm. you want do you want seed mixes? Do you want really in-depth seed mixes? Mm-hmm. Do you want, um, yeah, do you want trees planted? You know, there's all sorts of things. So how do you go in and kind of say as Impact 7G as – are you a for, that's a for profit? Is that correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As a, as a for profit, how do you work with this government agency? Be, because you were consulting and other people were consulting, how were you able to like start talking about price? Because price is is a hard thing to talk about in conservation because it, it's up there because there's mm-hmm. not tons of people doing it. So right. and, yeah, well, and there's so much there's so much work that goes into it too. Yeah, you know, the the 
various levels of work. Yeah, we're trying to mimic project. tens of thousands of years of of prairie evolution in like four years. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like there's got to be tons of work. Yeah. And that's a great question. It's daunting. And just listening to you ask it is <laughs> is daunting me. <laughs> but no, well and, and we confront that we confront that every day with every project. And I think the yep. easiest answer is that you kind of break it down into bite-sized pieces. You know, you look at an area and define it. And that's what was done out here. There are, you know, a, a number of different areas that had characteristics. And we looked at those, kind of drew boundaries, literally drew boundaries for them. And what are the really good characteristics of this area? What does it lend it to? Uh, or what does that area lend itself to in terms of reconstruction or restoration? Yeah, right. What use do we envision this having in the future? And then, yeah, you kind of put pen to paper and try to figure out what that's going to involve. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of, we were just talking about that kind of overgrown um, and really kind of a, a short-term successional work woodland which was very low quality mm-hmm. in a lot of the areas so it's things like honeysuckle coming yeah. in or yeah. black cherry things that you know some of them were native but not really high quality weren't growing all that well well what's it going to take to clear this what's in there once we clear this and then what's the future use going to be so sure. the process was to go through that define them all yeah. and what are the steps going to be and then an ongoing discussion about well do we want to do this there's a lot of prioritization just like uh, yeah. you know we were talking about remodeling a house earlier and sometimes my wife and I built a house too and it's like okay well maybe that's not in the budget but this is and you kind of prioritize what are the really important things that are yeah. going to have a lasting impact so tree planting yeah. would be one of those tree preservation certainly is one of those and then you can get a lot of bang for your buck out of turning a lot of land back yeah. into prairie right. so Man, mm-hmm. my wife and I are dealing with that right now. We're buying not a residential property, but another property in town. And it is uh, uh, like you go through the list of improvements that could happen. And you know who's the worst? They're not really the worst, but building inspectors are the worst because they come in <laughs> and they basically tell you why all of your dreams can't come true. And I hate that. <laughs> and so we met with our building inspector because, you know, you really should. And basically went through all the things that could happen it's like six times the price of the actual house. But then you go through the things that are like, these need to happen, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so which ones are most important. And I think similarly on land, it's said, okay, what is your budget? Okay, for that budget, we can, out of these 12, we can really hammer down on these five mm-hmm. and, and make a, um, a lasting impact. I, I like that a lot. I've talked to another gentleman who does conservation, and I wouldn't even, I, I mean, he does uh prairie but i wouldn't even consider him a competitor because he is so uh nuanced Mm -hmm. in he tells people i promise you i am not your cheapest option i am your highest quality option Mm -hmm. and he will go out to their property many many times over the course of several years doing lots of work you know planting at the perfect time uh going cutting down cutting down trees by hand you know so Mm -hmm. he he does those things and he gives them a not to exceed number yeah Mm -hmm. and and uh i find that fascinating yeah that's similar to our approach too okay you know and we use the term adaptive management which i'm sure you guys have heard before Mm -hmm. adaptive management is just that because we don't know what next year is going to bring and what if that you know that scary tornado we were talking about earlier blows through this area well we're gonna have to adapt to that kind of situation too the other thing is how is this area going to grow in um we're going to discover what water movement is like on the area Area and all those different mm-hmm. things kind of come into play. So there has to be a little bit of a moving target. And we like to, you know, define as much as is practical uh, in terms of a restoration project. But there are variables out there. So that whole 
idea of not to exceed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very familiar with that. So hmm. that's kind of been our approach out there too. Sure, but well, it's been fun, you know. Yeah. Um, and people are so excited about it when they learn about it. And I think because it tells the story, getting people to buy into this notion of restoration, land restoration in Iowa, is I, it's exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah it, Impact 7G does really cool work. It, is for you personally? Is the poor farm? Is that the majority of you, your work? It's the biggest. I wouldn't say it's the majority, but it's certainly the biggest project that we have right okay. now. And we do everything from a small little, what we'll call a pocket prairie in a backyard. In fact, we sure. just uh, got one confirmed from a homeowner in Iowa City yesterday that we're going to do that's about a third of an acre. Mm-hmm. So we'll do that. We've got you know, well-established backyard prairies that have been around for 30 years that we do some maintenance on and that's cool. ongoing maintenance. Yeah, And I think those are great case studies for, you know, you hear a lot about um, the notion of turning turf into prairie or something like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of us in this industry want to make the case for that. Um, I'm not necessarily that person. I would love to see everybody do it, of course, but I also get uh, you know, that that can be difficult and it, mm-hmm. it's a time commitment. But when we see these studies of a backyard that takes three visits a year rather than mowing it every week, fertilizing, weed control, all those different kinds of things, and it's beautiful um yeah. you know with a few visits per year yeah. i think we can make the compelling case that that can be done yeah. you know what, what what blows my mind is it's not the like uh fifth or quarter acre that is like what you need backyard prairie it's when they have like eight acres right in the front yard and you see their perfect mowing line so you know that they mow it like every four days <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like dude save yourself so much money and gas <laughs> and time, time and let me have something beautiful to look at on the side of the road <laughs> and put in prairie. I know that's a little biased. I guess you could do the same thing with like uh forest. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't have to be prairie. Yeah, and you know, that's just part of a societal shift that has to happen, you know, that we, you know, because we are trained for whatever reason. Like when you look at perfectly like when you drive by a nice golf course and you look at those perfect lines and and, and everything we've just been trained to subconsciously go, oh, beauty, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So if we can retrain the beholder's mm-hmm. eye, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that, you know, then, I think that's a great topic to explore a little bit. And I think about this a lot because I told you guys before, you know, I, I've had my my feet in both parts of like outdoor work. I, mm-hmm. I was in commercial landscape management mm-hmm. for a very long time, which is. It was kind of the uh, the gateway drug for me to get yeah. into prayers, <laughs> um, believe it or not. And, you know, I, I get it. And I think that person who's got the eight acres of perfect alternating stripes on their lawn right. is probably a lot closer to us than we think because they're taking a great deal of pride in that. They're enjoying being That's outside. Yeah. Yep. And, and I think those are the people I really want to have conversations with. You mm-hmm. know, this is gorgeous. And the reality is to, I know we like to use the talking points. Like, you know, you're not going to have to mow all that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like, a lot of those people really love mowing, and that's yeah. their relaxation yeah. when you think about right. it. So now I think about that all the time, that's a good too. good point. And, you know, where are their opportunities to, you know, intersperse? It's not dissimilar, I think, from talking about prairie strips within cornfields mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. too. Is there an opportunity for a strip or a big center or something like that? Or can this—I think a lot of people think of prairies as— um, you know, they're just kind of sloppy patches. And I really want this well-maintained, really linear yard. Okay, well, how about a really well-maintained prairie in the middle of it with a couple of like perfectly perpendicular trails going through it that you can enjoy. So, I mean, I think there are a lot of opportunities there. Um, But I think they're, I mean, I like to think having 
you know, again, feet are bona fides, I guess, in both yeah. parts of that, um, that aesthetic that we're probably a lot closer than we yeah. think to the turf lovers. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, it's interesting. Cause I feel like when you get one-on-one with people and have conversation, it's, it's a lot easier, but a lot of what, what we end up selling is just like, they see pictures of it on the internet mm-hmm. or they, um, heard that their neighbor got their CRP from us. So they're going to call us and get their CRP. So it's harder to have that conversation. And another tricky part for us is it tends to be, I mean, you at the conference, they're really pushing 20, 20 mixer or 50% grass and 50% mm-hmm. flowers and for everything, even pollinators, they were saying, don't have just tons of flowers, have 50, 50, and then be diverse. Well, to get that diversity to do a 2020, I have to convince a farmer or a landowner to spend more money. Mm-hmm. And right. it's just not better yeah. coming from me. I, I mean, sometimes, and I, and I try to be really frank with people like, hey, th- like this is a pretty good mix. Um, and it has some flowers. They will all be gone at year seven. Mm-hmm. Here's a mix. If you want flowers till year 10, this is what you want. And some of them don't care at all. And that's totally fine. That's where they're at. Mm-hmm. Uh and I'd rather have a field of a lot of different native grasses with the occasional black eyed Susan than, you know, a, a field, another field of corn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but the prairie strips, that's a big one. I've, I've been doing heavy research on Iowa water. I'm doing a series for a podcast on Iowa water. Uh, little tip guys. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> it's, it's bad. <laughs> um, I'll give everyone, um, little little snippet of something that I came across. So we're interviewing this guy, but uh state geologist did a uh, test of water in at golf courses and then at farmland near the golf courses and tested the streams of water. And the outcome of the data was that because a lot of people were saying like, well, why are they putting on this regulation on farmers, but not on golf courses? The outcome on the data was that if the whole state was covered in golf courses, Iowa's water would have 90% less nitrates in it. And it's like, yikes. Um, But uh, another thing is that landowners own the land and I'm not, I'm, I think it is worse to just let the government come in and just take, land and make people use it however they want to you know that that's not a good solution so the solution is kind of what we're doing is education and Mm -hmm. and i and we believe that when people experience and connect to prairie and you know they care about this thing then they will then they will have change Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you know i live in a rural area too and uh grew up i was telling you guys before my wife and i were both city kids mm-hmm. moving out to the country with oh are we going to be fish out of water out here or anything like that we love our neighbors dearly you know yeah. and we know that you know maybe we vote differently i don't know maybe we have different points of views on things but i could call anybody who lives anywhere near me i know at three in the morning if we had an emergency going on and and they darn well would show up yeah um so you know i, I yeah i think that the amount of daylight between us is really pretty small in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people really care. It's like making it economically viable, knowing what our options are. And I think I feel good being in this line of work because I feel like we're kind of at the vanguard of figuring Mm. out ways to do this right. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's a good point. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to hit pause right here, guys. In three, two, one. We were talking about the North American Prairie Conference that we kind of met at yeah, across yeah. the crowded room. Yeah. Um, 
there was a figure there that really stuck with me. And it's one of those things that you hear that should be like as plain as the nose on your face, but I hadn't really thought about it. And what's the figure that we always hear about what amount of like original landscape remains in Iowa? It's like mm-hmm. one-tenth of one percent. Right. We've all, it's the most altered landscape in the country. But one of the early speakers pointed out there that there that there's five times as much land reconstructed as there is in remnant in Iowa. And it occurred to me, yeah, I never really think about all the yeah, people mm-hmm. that are getting into this. So that is an ever expanding thing. And I think DNR, Iowa DNR estimates about 2000 acres or so per year. I mean, so it's a while before we're going to get back to, you know, have a million, many millions of acres. What do you mean by reconstructed? Cause you're not talking well, about CRP. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah actually CRP. CRP the but there's of, way more than 2000 acres a year. No, no, no. Well, I think you're taught that number was new ground that that, that was taking out of production. I, I think you're right. And it that went, no, I, like I think it's, it's like fifteen thousand. No, yeah, but like some of that might 000. be some of that might be reups. No, 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 eighteen thousand new. Oh, and yeah, because they get about past few years they've been getting like thirty thousand total signups. Oh, uh, wow. in, in acres. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so that's even more encouraging. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it just didn't occur to me. So, I mean, that was a real point of optimism for me yeah. to hear that this much is going into it every year. And yeah. and, I, and I think I tend to, at least me, maybe I'm, I'm doom scrolling too much about <laughs> Iowa's loss of native landscape. But um, but that amount being done every year, I think, is really, really encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more people that see this, that are aware that it's possible, it's doable, it's a really pretty result yeah. and has really a, a really positive impact on the environment yeah be easier to get people to buy into it yeah yeah mm-hmm. definitely you know kind of along those lines um there is a lot of remnant prairie or I'm, i shouldn't say it that way there is more remnant prairie that is found in old pasture ground and there's you know quite a bit of old pasture across the state and um i was just doing a visit with a client uh, a week ago today actually and uh, that farm, it was, I think, an 80-acre farm. And I'd say 75 of the acres were pasture. Mm-hmm. And we found prairie species while we were walking around, you know, showing evidence that, yeah, there's, you know, and, and the landowner is very knowledgeable. She had a good understanding of what farming practices have been done on there in the past. And in those areas that had never seen a moldboard plow, go through mm-hmm. um there's very likely remnant prairie that's just you know in the seed bank or, did you tell or, her to burn or, do late burns right yeah so we talked about that whole process and everything but if you could do that if you could go through and and do those late spring burns especially where you can really stunt that cool season grass that's really holding things down mm-hmm. and some cedar management like we've had on this farm to find the remnant here and Tabitha Panis talked about, she used to do a lot of work with uh, cedar removal in the Los Hills area. Um, if we could do that across the state, I think that fraction of a, you know, that 10th of the, of, of 1%, you know, um, of remnant prairie that remains, you know, it'd be interesting to see what does that percentage go to. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's encouraging too. Like, you know, we feel like this has been lost, gone forever and in a way, yes, you know, you don't have, like, there's a remnant, man, I, we have so many things to tell you to go see while you're in town here, <laughs> Jeff, but there's a remnant very close to here I'll tell you about after after we're done um, that I saw on the 
field trip is like a 30 acre remnant. And that's when it really dawns on you just how diff, you know, a total different level of diversity yeah. in a remnant prairie compared to a reconstructed yeah. and even bringing back a remnant from these pastures. But still you could get a lot of prairie back, mm-hmm. you know, if again, we're taking this back to the public mindset becomes that of, yeah, you know what? I like having prairie around and you get people starting to put a match to these old pastures and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, you'll still have cool season grasses mixed in there, but you start having a bunch of native forbs come back for, for bees and for butterflies and for birds and, and on and on, you know, it gets to be looking like a better picture there too. But mm-hmm. Don't you feel like when, when you become aware of what the native landscape looked like, and I'm thinking of Savannah landscapes right now, mm-hmm. it seems like it's pretty frequent actually that you drive by something that looks like an old Savannah. You yeah. Know, I noticed that on the interstate coming here over from Johnson County, um, that, you know, pass a number of them on the way and that certainly is remnant ground under there uh, yeah. it might have been pastured yeah uh, might have a lot of smooth brome on it um and might take some coaxing to yeah. the prairie out of that but you know in in geological time in historical yeah. time we're not that far removed really from when this was covered by prairie so yeah you know i think we have a lot of opportunities out there in those plots of land you know and people beginning to appreciate or returning to appreciating what that stuff looked like too makes it an easier sell yeah. for us. I yeah. think there's a lot more conversations about that, even just in the short time that you know, this has been an interest of mine. Sure. Mm. Yeah. I think when you start talking about people who are uh, um, willing to take that ground out of so-and-so, or maybe it's just not a good pasture. I mean, there's not a lot of like small, there's a much, there's, much fewer small cattle farmers, right? So you start talking about people who are willing to take things out of pasture and put it in a prairie. And that I would say is one really good positive that's come out of these really efficient monocultured fields Mm -hmm. is uh, now they don't have to use all hundred acres to produce food for their family and their 10 neighbors. They actually only need like 80. Now they have extra to bring to market to make money. And I get that, but there's actually, as we become more and more efficient and I was reading something somewhere that I wish I could quote it, but they basically were saying we've become more fit. We've, we've grown our food efficiency faster than population. Um, and because we're able to do that, people are starting to be like, Oh, I I've got, you know, these 12 acres and they'd be really crappy corn and soybeans. Why? Oh, I, I wouldn't like to enjoy this or, you know, even hunting leasing, I would mm-hmm. say, you know, you get, then you're able to keep it a little more native. Um, but I do wonder as the landscape changes, you know, what's going to happen because 60 years ago, there was much less corn and soybeans. So 60 years from now, what, what are we going to be? Yeah. Which way does the ebb and flow ebb and flow? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I always tell my, tell people that what is the new dancing? Mm-hmm. Hundred years ago, man, you're going straight to hell if you were if you were caught <laughs> dancing. My friend, my friend grew up Mennonite, and he said that they had a phrase, "Don't have sex because it leads to dancing." That's what like all the old people <laughs> the don't have sex; it leads to dancing. So like, people did not agree with that. Well, thanks today, for, thanks for saying that twice for us, Nick. Man. Yeah, dude, goodness. I'm here. I'm here for it. I'm here for the. I'm here for the listener having a good time. Uh, what today is going to be, do we think is a big deal and isn't a big deal? 
and what today are we not thinking about at all? Uh, like how we used to just dump brome and that was CRP. That mm-hmm. was your set aside acres was dumping brome on things. Mm-hmm. And they weren't, they were thinking, man, that's not a big deal. And now it is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what, I always think that I'm like, we're getting a bunch of stuff wrong and I do wonder what it is. Well, we like to live in all or nothing, you know, ways of doing life, you know, like the simplified as possible, you know, it's, it's gotta be in an absolute, uh, uh, type of thing. And so, you know, you think I, it's honestly impressive. It's terrible, but it's impressive how much we covered the entire country with Kentucky bluegrass and, (laughs) and smooth brome and, and reed canary and fescue and all these non-native grasses who on earth had the motivation to go and cover every square inch, but somebody did a lot of everybody did very successful. Wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, it's everywhere. Like the, the furthest reaches, of of a farm you will go in there and you will find one of those species that i just said dude mark twain says that that he has rarely ever run into a clinically insane individual but when people are together it is a necessity <laughs> so group think man yeah, oh I mean, you're getting kentucky blue i better get some yeah, kentucky yeah. blue i mean it, it's, need to fit in it's it's wild how that happened but again you're dealing in that like uh, what is super simple? Oh, you put this down just like you just said. Oh, my neighbor's doing that. I better do that. And so we want, we then, when we realize, ooh, that was not good, you know, and we have all these other terribly invasive species that are, you know, like reed canary, for instance. Man, once you have that, it's so hard to get rid of. And so then it's like, okay, well, that, you know, that was the all or nothing problem. We chose the wrong thing there what is the all or nothing solution now, you know, to how do, how do we make this all better? And, uh, I just think that that is rarely the answer, you know? And, and, um, so when you try to foresee what those problems are, those are probably what it's going to be. Do we have all or nothing agriculture right now? Yeah, (laughs) we do. You know, we have a handful of species, that that's it, you know, and it's all or nothing for those species. So those are probably going to lead to some of our, you know, they lead to the problems that we have now, like water quality, like you mentioned, Nick, and uh, also our soil quality and, and so forth. So that kind of thing, I think we can go ahead and predict those are going to lead to our problems down the road, but also um, to prevent problems. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe we should try and find that balance somewhere in the middle, you know, um, if somebody had really, really liked the look of Kentucky bluegrass and honestly, Kentucky bluegrass, it kind of makes sense to put it in your yard, uh, because, uh, um, prairies, let's say if we had just 50%, well, let's let's go even lower. Let's say we had a quarter of our native prairies left. That's a lot of surface area in Iowa's native prairie. There'd be a lot of houses that would be at very great risk if you want, like Nick talked at the beginning of this episode, you want that to stay prairie, you better be hitting it with fire. There'd be a lot of houses at great risk of burning to the ground every time there was, there was, you yeah. know, prescribed burning. Unless you got Kentucky blue. Right. So if you have that cool season grass growing on your homestead, it makes sense. So that would be an example of, yeah, we don't cover every square inch of the farm that's not in row crops with Kentucky bluegrass, but we cover the part around the house, around the mm-hmm. barn, around the, where the livestock are at, you know? Mm-hmm. And so 
I think if we if we want to know what those problems are going to be, like you talked about, Nick, it's it's the things that we go all in on, and it has to be this one exact way, uh, just because the world is so diverse, and you can't just throw an all or nothing situation to yeah. a very diverse situation. And we can't kill it all either. You yeah. know? Right? Yeah. You know, and no. that's a good point. And you know, I think that well, a, a number of things you think about the like the law of unintended consequences mm-hmm. um but also wanting to do the right thing why were these things introduced oh well the smooth brome really good effective pasture grass mm-hmm. look how fast it covers yeah the kentucky bluegrass make a nice lawn out of it and yeah. glad people covered their bare dirt that's a yeah, good thing absolutely you know, too, yeah and used up until not that long ago i yeah. still in recent years um seen it in seed mixes i'm like no take it back <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no more we've got plenty of that but it also brings up like when we're looking at the poor farm for example what is a restoration approach to this is it to um learn as much as we can about what this looked like in 1855 or maybe 1854 before anything started out here is that realistic is what the, is that what the use of it is going to mm, be today yeah. how has this land changed so it's certainly something you want to take into account um mm. in making a restoration plan but all those other things too also in this situation we have those things that we just talked about we have smooth brome out there we have reed canary grass yeah um and how do we manage that is it realistic to spend you know however many thousands of dollars just to kill reed canary grass when you know as soon as the contract expires it's all going to be right back Mm -hmm. or do we selectively choose that this area, we're just going to, you know, kind of contain it, mow around that, plant around it, right. or take into account what kind of environment reed canary grass doesn't want to grow in, so it doesn't like shade. Okay, let's populate this area with some more trees mm. and let them do their thing. Yeah. yeah. And then our maintenance or our management approach at that time is take care of the trees, keep the reed canary grass away from the trees until they're big enough to cast some shade on it. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that we're taking into account when doing a restoration plan all the time. Yeah. But, yeah, it's interesting. We're not going to make Iowa what it was. I was going to stay in an yeah. agricultural state. Yeah. Um, but what are those pieces that realistically can be yeah. either reconstructed, maybe restored, and, and hopefully preserved in a lot of cases too? Yeah. yeah. We, that's well something said. we talk a lot about as well. I, I was not going back to the way it, it was, and that is okay. Mm-hmm. We are logo is a pheasant, not a native bird. Yeah, not a bob and, white or a prairie but, chicken. Yeah, and it, but it's something that came together and stu- it stuck with Iowa well. So how can we... How can we help agriculture to fit something that you said kind of struck me? I, Oh, it wasn't Simon Sinek. It was someone else. Um, but they were basically talking about humans love to categorize things mm-hmm. because they feel safe and comfortable and they feel like they're in control when they're in these categories. And we like to do that with, with our lawns, mm-hmm. with uh, different things. We like a solution that's going to wipe it out, but that's just not, how nature and prairie does things. Mm-hmm. It's very messy. I mean, even look at the nature of human relationships, very messy, very nuanced. Every situation is different. There's no exact copy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we take that approach to nature, to the directly to nature and say, you, even to the individual plant, you are going to respond differently than other plants that are the same species you, to this shade tree you're going to have slightly different shade, you know, maybe Ohio spider work for some reason works under you, but not under your brother, you know, two, uh, 200 yards away. And that's where, that's where price starts going really high. If you could put every prairie in a little category, you know, and, and plant your 30 species out there, 
um, which we have to do to some extent. But if you could do that, you know, prairie price would start going down and mm-hmm. down and down. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we can't do that. Every situation is different. That's why, you know, people charge $1,500 consulting fees for 10 acres because uh, they they want it nuanced. They want, hey, this is my situation. How would you handle my situation? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think when we are okay with that, when we start to see, hey, it's going to be messy, we're not going to have uh, fit in the box, um, then I think we're, we're one step closer. And another thing, as Ken always says, we got to have more value than the dollar. Mm-hmm. So when people are willing to say, I'm willing to spend a little extra money, I want this to work well. Mm-hmm. I want this prairie to um, adapt well, and I want to adapt well around it. And not just prairie, you know, nature and, and, and um, conservation and uh, how we interact with the world, which is what you guys are doing really well. Um, how are humans going to interact with this world? And I, I think that's super awesome. Yeah, I, th- I think every landowner should uh, uh, take an inventory of the things that they have that money cannot buy. You know, just and maybe not even landowner, just people in general should do that. And and then you would start to identify those things that okay, I need to value this more than than what I could get for it in some way, shape or form, if I cashed in on it, you know? And, and, uh, I think when people, if it, or if people did that on all their stuff, so many more things would be preserved. That would be so much more beneficial down the, the road. And then when we look back at the end of our lives at what we've, you know, had in a way entrusted to us, right. In our lifetime, um, we have less regrets. We, we say, well, yeah. that's something I can be really proud of that I, I did that and and I saw that value. I'm going to hit pause right here, guys. In three, two, one. You know, that's a great point about kind of leaving the legacy, being able to look back on kind of what difference you've made on the Mm -hmm. planet when you've been here. Uh, And this has come up in conversation a lot. I have the good fortune to be working with a crew of what we call the restorationists, (laughs) Um, who are all very much younger than me. Um, But we have an intern this year uh, from the University of Iowa, and we do that most years. And uh, just so appreciated her enthusiasm for it. But we um, planted about 600 trees out at the Johnson County Poor Farm last December. So it was before she started, yeah. And this was one of those situations where we looked at, found some good quality trees out there, an unusual abundance of oaks in this particular area for an area Mm. that didn't have much in terms of tree cover just 30 years ago, but there were a few legacy trees out there. So this particular area called Oakland, remember we were out there thinking about it and and she's been actually doing a lot of tree maintenance this year. They're in the first year of growth. And unfortunately, some of that maintenance has had to be driving around with a tank full of water and letting letting it trickle on them (laughs) because it's been so dry in our part of the state. But she made a remark about how, you know, and she's just turned 21, I think. How, yeah, I'm going to come back here in the future and a lot of years from now and check out what this looks like, you know, and know that I had a hand in making it look like this. And I love that legacy component of it. And then beyond that, the fact that there are 21 year olds and 18 year olds and, you know, younger out there really, really interested in this line of work. A lot of my coworkers are in their 20s and pursuing masters. And in this line of work, I love what's coming into this field right now. It really gives me a lot. Out of hope yeah. yeah yeah vision casting one of my favorite things to do in the world i um before i came back started working on the farm i did a lot of what's called whiteboarding similar mm-hmm. to waterboarding 
Uh, no, <laughs> no. It, it, basically, you walk someone through like an hour and a half session. People who feel stuck or have a big life problem mm-hmm. or who don't know what to do with their life. It's really popular with like 23, 24-year-olds, you know, got out of college. Um, and the idea is to grow vision. And there's very few, there's probably no examples better than having vision for something than planting a freaking tree. Yeah, like you, right. you are, <laughs> especially an oak tree. Oh yeah. yeah you're right. mandated to think in 50 years, mm-hmm. you know, in yeah. terms of, of that long. And I think that is really cool. It's, it's like, it impresses itself upon you, the, the imagination. And so I, um, I, I haven't whiteboarded in a long time, but I plan to use that as an example when I start doing it again as like, uh, Hey, have you ever thought about planting a tree? What would happen in 50 years? You know? Yeah, this, so I'm, you know, being an outdoorsman is, is a big part of what got me into, um, the conservation space. And so I enjoy hunting, especially and, and shed hunting and, and, uh, fishing of course. And, and, uh, so on the farm that we live on this spring, I took my kids and, and my wife joined us a few times and we went and planted, I think we planted just shy of 30 oak trees around on our farm. Mm-hmm. And the whole time I was doing it, it was, I mean, you know, my oldest is six, I have three kids. And so it's a, it is a task to drag them out into the woods. I think it rained on us a few times, which is good when you're planting a tree, <laughs> you know, you get, it's getting watered. Yep. But, uh, um, you know, you're wading through thorns. Kids are tripping and crying. Your wife is questioning why on earth she got dragged out here to do this. And and I, I had that exact thought, you know, like, like Nick said, this is something 50 years from now when this is going to be a benefit to an outdoors person. And I yeah. hope that is my kids. When Jonas's really, grandkid. Right. Or his, yeah. not his grandkid, but his kid, you know, is old enough to go on his own. Cause he'd be 56. I mean, there's not many 56 year olds there with grandkids. My mom's 53. She's not a, going hunting by themselves. Though. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's something though that I've been able to enjoy so much on that farm because my grandfather had, a vision and during the era of you dig that plow deep, you, you, you cut down those trees to get that, that little bit extra, you know, and, uh, he left stuff like that alone and he let mm-hmm. tree and he planted a bunch of trees <laughs> and I've been able to enjoy that. And there is something that is more deeply rewarding though. When you think of that, like one of my, grandkids someday will be thinking thanks grandpa you know yeah. like you, you put this here and now i can enjoy it and yeah hopefully that inspires them to plant two trees for everyone that i did you know and it'd be, it'd be pretty special it's such an act of human generosity to do it you know yeah coming yeah. from kind of the landscape world it it was always kind of a priority like well we want immediate impact get a big tree out here right big bald yeah. and burlap tree and um I like the saying that, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago? Yeah, right. When's yep. the next best time yep. right now? You know, and that notion that you can leave something like that, I feel just as good planting a big tree as I do an acorn mm-hmm. um, because yeah. it ties us, I think to me, and I'll 
get all spiritual here now, but no, but great. it ties you to kind of like all of humanity in a way, yeah. you know, because they're going to be here a lot longer than us. We think about the big baroques out of, and yeah. just a couple of them out of the county poor farm, but based on the on the DBH of these trees, the circumference, um, we think probably 230, 250 for one of those trees. And, oh, if this could talk, you know, yeah. and we're getting to spend part of this tree's life with it, but can we're just explain, such a small can, part of it. Can you explain that, that DBH? Diameter no. at breast height. Okay. Yeah, so that's kind I've of just that this, before. I never, I never knew what so that So is that was. how many okay. rings there are? at no it's height. actually just the unit of measure that you use so when you're kind of grading trees or aging trees you think yeah. about dbh okay. so it's right you know right about this level which it's rough um yeah but yeah that counting the rings that'd be post-mortem yeah unfortunately right. yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. um but dbh is a figure that we use too if we're treating a tree for a disease or something like that that's how you yeah. determine how much of whatever you know treatment sure. you're so you would just take the average what a ring averages at and divide that by actually there is a special tool because i'm not good at math so it's a dbh tape measure and you just put it okay. around the whole trunk of the yep, tree the same thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah so if you see a 36 inch dbh whatever yeah you know, that's referring to like a diameter at breast height so we're wanting to know what it really is is circumference yep mm-hmm. yeah um, so, you know, that's something, a figure that you probably hear a lot of because all the ash trees are dying. Yeah. So if anyone's getting an ash tree treated, they have to know, is it, you know, what, what the DBH is so we know how much product to put yeah. into it to kill the borer. We need yeah. to go down this rabbit trail because we're, we're joined with an, uh, an arborist. I am. Oh, arborist, yes. yes. Yeah, that's right. So, so uh, I love that conversation about ash trees because mm-hmm. ash trees are devastated Mm -hmm. across much of the United States, but especially here in Iowa. I mean, if you have ash trees, you had ash trees, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it's, I mean, everywhere. Yeah. And what's the outlook in your opinion? Do you think, you know, a hundred years from now, that's a, it's like a, an American chestnut or what, I mean, do you think there's going to be a, a rebound or is EAB just going to keep sweeping all across the country? And That's a great question. And I feel a few different ways about it. One, I don't think it's going to be like the, the chestnut blight um, because it's an insect. And I think one of two things are going to happen. Either a resistant hybrid variety is going to mm. come up or we're going to identify uh trees that for whatever reason have developed uh adaptation to it uh, or resistance Mm -hmm. to it uh you know you're right we're losing so many of them but there are a lot of legacy ash out there that are being treated by arborists so they're going to continue to exist and thrive as long as they're being treated Mm -hmm. so brief comment on that i've talked to our local dnr forester and the i think the current school of thought is that another eight to 10 years or so for the current treatment regimen, if you're choosing to get an ash tree treated and using the product Mmectin benzoate, uh, that gets you like two years. Um, Mm. so every other year treatment right now they're seeing in the areas where emerald ash borer arrived in the country before Iowa. So Michigan, Ohio, even the Chicago suburbs that they're able to go maybe more like three years, sometimes four years now. So that window of treatment uh, or between treatments is expanding somewhat. Mm. Um, And then we don't exactly know what's going to happen with the borer itself. You know, will there be predators that appear that kind of reduce the population there? Where are they from? Um, Eurasia or Asia? Asia. Asia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and they think it arrived in a pallet somewhere That's around right, Detroit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In a pallet? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's, so I've talked about this book so many times, especially in the prehistoric prairie series, for, the book 1493 by Charles Mann, mm-hmm. where it discusses the Columbian Exchange. And it applies to so many things. And pallets, pallet wood would be another one, mm-hmm. you know. Right. I, I would imagine there's probably been other invasive yeah. uh, uh, introductions because of things like pallet wood. Well, if you, let, let's say for some odd reason humans were taken out of the world and insects and um, creatures for some reason were able to get from place to place. Let's say they were just barges that went back and forth from continents. So they could go wherever they wanted. You would still have like evolutions in areas demanded mostly by climate because it wouldn't be as much by fauna because the fauna can go there. So I'm wondering if you would have less diversity or more diversity if if fauna could travel wherever they wanted, insects and so. Generally speaking, less diversity. Okay. Huh. That's fascinating. So here's the thing. I. Uh, but given, you know, given enough time, there could be a whole ecological reshuffling too that could yeah. take place. I mean, you're getting all sorts of like hybrid species and uh, um, subspecies and things like that. One um, one thing I have hope for the American chestnut. I think I think give give it fifty years. Mm-hmm. You know, I I have hope for it. We're only a hundred years into it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm optimistic though, too. I agree. <laughs> but it's interesting to think about, and we're, you know, evolution is kind of on fast forward, you know, so yeah. if you think about. I'm excited how, for those robots to wipe my diaper when I'm older and take care of my gardens. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm thinking more in terms they, of they nature. Change the di- <laughs> they, they don't wipe the diaper, Nick. They change the diaper and wipe you. Oh, okay. <laughs> those cold metallic, I don't have kids Those yet. cold metallic fingers. <laughs> <laughs> but so many things moving forward are going to play into this too, right? Because of climate change. And, you know, if we were to have as a goal reconstruction of Iowa as it was, would we even be able to do that with the climate being like it is? Or is this something like, you know, think about the land bridge that used to exist that got other things here, um, you know, thousands of years ago or millions of years ago. Um, Yeah, you know, there's the notion of rewilding out there that I'm sure you guys have probably looked into a little bit. And I think the case is made by some, and I'm by no means an expert in that. So if you're a rewilder and listening to this, I don't know enough about what you're doing, only enough to be dangerous. Direct but, all your hate mail to Nicholas. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's spelled K-E-N-T oh, yeah, yeah. at hawksandmcs.com. <laughs> but I think there are advocates for kind of a hands-off approach to see what, you know, all these things that we're trying to control, like reed canary grass and smooth brome grass yeah. and all those kinds of things. What would happen if we just let them be? My personal take on that from having been scratched in the eyeball by multiflora rose is that oh, I don't want more of this going yeah, on. You yes. know? I think we're still close enough to the time period of pre-settlement. I mean, we're, what, 170, 180 years into it on a geological time frame that's very, very brief. Yeah. And I think we still have a lot of opportunity to, you know, again, not restore completely to what it was pre-settlement, but I think to take advantage of uh, what had evolved for thousands of years here. Yeah. Yeah. It's good it, perspective. It would be. I, I wonder if we even could. We'd have basically yeah. what would have to happen is we'd have to rip up all the trees, plant tons and tons of prairie, uh, populate bison for like 50 years, 
and then and set a fire out. and yeah. leave. Yeah, yeah set a yeah. fire and then move out and see what happens. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, maybe maybe you could get there. But then no, because you wouldn't have the you wouldn't have the indigenous people that were here mm-hmm. before right. us that were that were making an impact. Because there was some measure of input. Yeah, you know, it definitely oh, yeah. was a disrupted and an altered and a, a, a manipulated landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably argue not much, you know, more productive yeah. to yeah. the topsoil certainly at yeah. the time. Well, and and our friend Taylor Keene talked about this in episode two of the Prehistoric Prairie series. Um, Native Americans viewed it more as a they participated mm-hmm. with the natural systems around them instead of yeah instead of stepping in to reroute to control to you know to lord over you know mm-hmm. it was yeah. a how can we work alongside of this mm-hmm. and. So yeah, Nick, you're you're right. You know, there, that was part of it too. Was, yeah. So, we've been hanging out around this question, but uh, good luck with it. Um, <laughs> if you could change one thing, what would you change? You, it can be about ecology, or you could say, "I I wish my wife's cooking was better." You can say whatever you want. <laughs> oh man! No, I got really lucky in that regard. So mm-hmm. um, I'm glad I'm not cooking. <laughs> You know, that's a great question. Um, I wish I would have been aware of this part of reality at a younger age. Mm -hmm. I wish I would have been turned on to this at the age of 15 rather than, you know, approaching 40. Um, And I'm well past that by now. So it's been quite a while. (laughs) You know, um, no, I I wish this is something. I always enjoyed the outdoors, loved riding my bike, played. I was a kid in the 70s and played outside all the time certainly so i love the outdoors but i didn't have great consciousness of what was the landscape before me here Mm. or even the trees that were in the yard and i grew up in a pretty big yard um and certainly loved it and i mowed it with my dad and stuff like that and i liked being outside and doing those kinds of things but i really wish i would have been aware of conservation efforts at a younger age and gotten into it sooner and planted more trees when i was like 10 yeah so i could enjoy them for more of my life um, but you know, it's, I guess it's one of those things. It was sort of an evolution an evolution to get to this and it's ongoing. And one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that I don't ever have a day when I go home from work, having not learned something new, you know, it's really yeah. fresh all the time. Um, I'd like to think it keeps me youthful, even if I don't look like it, but you know, yeah, it certainly I, keeps my approach really fresh. Yeah, I agree. I, I mm-hmm. I feel Nick will Nick will laugh in my face when I say this, but I feel I'm younger. Looking forward to it. <laughs> younger <laughs> since uh, you know getting into this work too. I would agree with that one hundred percent. Yeah, I'm glad it's there. It's also the gift that keeps on giving, right? Because uh, well, to go along with that, I never go home having not learned something new that day. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Prairie Conference where we first kind of had a connection with each other is something that I walked away from. Uh, on a very surface level thinking, wow, this is a lot of people really into this. That's really cool. Um, I've got my notebook in front of me here with all these different places now that I need to go explore. Um, We talked about being an arborist. Actually, I haven't been an arborist all that long. Um, Been interested in trees for quite a while, but got my certification really not all that long ago. Um, And that's another part of the natural environment that is a gift that keeps on giving too, you know? Um, But this is evolving in front of us. We talk about kind of coexisting with the land and with our environment. Um, and I feel very fortunate to be in a situation where that's my daily reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was pretty good. That was the most personal answer to that question. You said that you wish you would have got into it and cared sooner. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's, 
I feel like that is and not that you're anywhere near the end of your life, but that that is an end of like Kent's probably faced with this question. Uh, end of the life question. Like I wish I wish I wish I would have cared about the things that were important sooner. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where people were like, I wish I would have spent time with my family or I wish I would have done this. And and that was I remember listening to an interview of like a bunch of people that made it to a hundred. Mm-hmm. Like and one of the ladies said, spend as much time outside as you can. Mm-hmm. That was her yeah. answer. And well, well and Skip kind of talked about this too when we interviewed him. And he mentioned um, you know, the time to the time to plant a tree or the time to do something is now, mm-hmm. you know, don't, don't wait for it to make sense. You, you gotta, you gotta jump on yeah. it now. Yeah. Action. And don't worry about what you don't know. I mean, that's something yeah. too, because it's a gift that keeps on giving. How many yeah. times have I said that now? But no, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of, I think of it, I was a musician growing up and I sometimes think of it in this way. You don't start playing a piano or, or you start playing a piano with chopsticks, not yeah. Rachmaninoff or Chopin, yeah, right? right? Yeah. You know, so it takes a while to get to. Um, and, you know, one of my colleagues and I have talked about this too. He had actually worked with me at the place I worked for a really long time in commercial landscape management. And I remember early on, he started just like two weeks after I did. And uh, I like, God, I feel like an imposter. <laughs> and, yeah. um, just because we had so much to learn. Yeah. And every day we're being exposed to so much more stuff. And there are other areas of it too. I mean, we hardly, we're more like the boots on the ground in terms of trees, prairies, stuff like yeah. that. But then there's wetland work and stuff like that too. Mm-hmm. And the whole design and reconstruction of these kinds of yeah. things. So yeah, really it's vast, but get into it. If you're, if you're interested, dive right in. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I love that. Yeah, mm-hmm. can you uh, give everyone just like a quick elevator speech on Impact 7G here before we wrap this up and how to maybe contact you guys? And Yeah, absolutely. Things? And thanks for the opportunity. This is a lot of fun. I could yeah. do this all day long. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this was but, a ton yeah, of fun. Impact 7G, so we're kind of all things environmental, um, and that can be indoors, outdoors. And I'll start with me. So as I said at the beginning, I am the project manager for restoration services. I work in the part of the company called Natural and Cultural Resources. So we're part of the company that most of us are located actually in eastern Iowa and uh, so for us we talked a lot about the poor farm we're reconstructing prairies we're maintaining prairies we do controlled burns Um, we do a lot of TSI timber stand improvement so Mm -hmm. clearing woodlands a lot of tree planting Um, cultural resources that's kind of the archaeological part of the business too so phase one environmental surveys Uh, we have a lot of archaeologists now on staff a great right yeah explain explain this a little bit more than the elevator pitch on the archaeological because we meant to get into that in the conversation yeah i wish i could and actually that's maybe another podcast for you to bring on one of my my doctoral colleagues uh, because they're fascinating people about where are they out of um uh, actually, a couple locations. So, out of the Eastern Iowa offices, Coralville and North Liberty, we work out of there. Um, also, Rapid City, South Dakota. Okay. Um, wow. Yeah. So they're, you know, they'll be looking at things where maybe a, a road extension is going through, and Martin Luther King Boulevard in Des Moines is an area that's going to be expanded. So we've got to do the environmental surveys uh, ahead of that. So it's literally, mm. you know bucket auger digging and looking for artifacts and there are Mm. areas we know more or less about Um, a lot of times they leave a job site and their success is that they found nothing yeah Um, right yeah because they're mm -hmm. they can become the uh unpopular 
person in, on the job site, exactly. right? But they're also, too, and they're on some really fascinating projects, too, where, you know, siting for telecommunications towers or the architectural historians looking sure, at that. So sure. if there's That's a, pretty cool. Yeah, a National Register building, they take into consideration, well, what's the view shed from here? Is a big cell tower behind this, you know, the, the first cabin in Iowa? Is that going to ruin the experience of this mm. National Register yeah, location? Important. Yeah, so that's we do very important. those kinds of surveys and reports. Um, watershed planning also out of, uh, primarily out of the uh, Johnson County offices, um, but we do that work all over the place. Have just recently had a big project uh, through Dyersville. And uh, yeah, go to our website to see some of these. We've got some really, really good yeah. pictures of this kind of stuff going on. But yeah, all things water, indoor and outdoor environmental. So then there's the industrial hygiene, the environmental compliance end of it. So that's more of the indoor kind of stuff. So if, for example, um, you want to get out of flipping houses and start flipping school buildings, um, <laughs> you might call Impact 7G to do a survey for any lead or asbestos or anything like that in those oh. kinds of buildings. Do you guys remove? Uh, I just got a quote for removing asbestos. Turns out, not cheap. Yeah, that's what we understand. We do not do that ourselves, but we work with a lot of strategic partners. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that covers it. And if any of my... um, Colleagues are listening. I'm sorry <laughs> if I forgot. <laughs> Man, no, it's been, it's been all things awesome environmental. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I, and and because you guys do so much, it's actually it was kind of hard for me to figure out what you guys do do. But mm-hmm. when I was talking to someone on the phone, do <laughs> do, uh, I was talking to you guys on the phone. I said, "Well, do you do this? Yep. Do you do this? Yeah, yeah, we do that. Do you, what about this? Yeah." And so <laughs> I was like, "Oh, so you do it all?" So when you say you do everything having to do with environment or conservation, you really do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and that is really cool. Yeah, and based in Iowa, so yeah, yeah, that's cool. Our headquarters are in Johnston, and we've got offices Coralville and North Liberty, like I mentioned. Uh, we've got some folks up in Sioux City, Rapid City, and then. Uh, folks all over the country um, working kind of on-site and remote kind of hybrid workplaces, and they're doing uh, a lot of that telecommunications siting work. Wow. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very that is good. really cool. Yeah. What a, what a tremendous conversation, and it, it's exciting to see someone like Jeff who's just passionate about what he's doing and excited for it. And and also, in uh, you know, you talked about your role of helping with the intern program and you know, bringing up that next generation of conservationists that are entering the professional field mm-hmm. and, you know, sh- teaching them the ropes and helping them have a good experience. So they want to come back and, and see those trees that they planted. You know? Well, the human and the, and the plant legacy is what I hope to leave behind if I ever mm-hmm. do retire from this. Um, so, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And extremely exciting to see what you guys are doing out here. I really oh. appreciate the tour and the opportunity. And uh, and like I mentioned, you're right at our latitude. So uh, be expecting some seed orders from yeah, us. It sounds, it sounds great. <laughs> that is it what we do. Great. Well, that and this. We do a lot of podcasts. Or we swear at cutting metal. We were sitting <laughs> Kent and I today. We're trying to cut metal from an old bin we had torn down, and uh, turns out we hate doing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was it was a, yeah, it was a real challenge. <laughs> yeah, it was not fun, but man, we we like what we do, and uh, one of those one of those perks is getting to meet people like you, and and uh, yeah, Kent and I feel like we're getting a master's in prairie, just one of the people we get to talk to, and they get to share with us. Um, but uh, thanks so much for coming out. And uh, I feel like you are a shining example of, of the kind of people we enjoy to be around. But then also the you've had the epiphany. You went from not caring 
to caring about Prairie. And, and, and that's what we're working towards. We're working towards the education and the inspiration of people with, with Prairie. And then if, if you need seed, great, we have it. And mm-hmm. there's actually other great companies that also have it. But um, yeah. It, and so if you're sitting there, you're wondering, what can I do? I don't have a yard. I can't put any seed down. I don't own any land. Honestly, you, you can share this podcast mm-hmm. and hopefully that would inspire someone else. You, yeah. you could um, talk to people who do have land. You could tell people it's important. Here's a really cool one. You could email your representative. That would be fun. What if just once or twice a year you sat down, emailed, hey, these are the things I care about, and one of them is conservation. That would be awesome. We really, really appreciate all of you guys, and you are the ones that are fighting for conservation. So thank you. As we know, conservation happens one mind at a time. <laughs>